This morning we are continuing in our series about common grace, that grace which is both found in the most ordinary places in our lives and also that grace that God gives us that's found when we gather together. This morning we're going to talk about how that grace can be found in discipleship. As I was praying about this, I was remembering an unusual example of grace that came to me last fall, right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice, passed. If you're familiar with her story, you know that she shared a very unusual friendship with Antonin Scalia, her polar opposite on the Supreme Court. If there was a decision among the court, it was almost always assured that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia would be on opposite sides of the opinion. And yet, we learned when he passed in 2016 that they had shared a decades-long friendship that was forged over trips to the opera, sharing meals together between their families, their love of New York, and of course, their deep love of the law, and of all things law, teaching, speaking, deliberating, pondering. Their friendship became for all of us in a very divided political world a reminder that these kind of odd couple friendships can not only exist, but can be a place of deep growth. When I think of that story, I am reminded about how God's grace comes to us in those kinds of relationships. Relationships where we feel like we could not be more different than someone else. And yet, by building a relationship with that person, we not only become better versions of ourselves, we become witnesses for the world. This morning, our scripture brings to us another example of an odd couple, a chance encounter orchestrated by God comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 8. The scripture is going to be on the screen for you to follow along, but this is the story of a time when the disciple Philip was called to a road where he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. Hear now our scripture. An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip. At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem where he had come to worship. He was a eunuch and an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting in his carriage. The spirit told Philip, approach this carriage And stay with it. Running up to the carriage, Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked, do you really understand what you're reading? The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he didn't speak, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants? Because his life was taken from the earth. 
The eunuch asked Philip, tell me about whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. As they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, water. What would keep me from being baptized? He ordered the carriage halt. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. When he came up out of the water, the Lord's Spirit suddenly took Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself in Azotus. He traveled through that area preaching the good news in all the cities until he reached Caesarea. It can be overwhelming if you think of all of the different moving pieces happening here. And so often we're tempted to simplify this story and say this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And what this story is about is how Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch about Christ. Now that's in here. That's definitely in what I just read. That happened. But that's not all that happened. This isn't just a story about a one-way passing of information from Philip to the eunuch. This story is a story of how God's grace creates mutual transformation. Because you see, this story isn't just about how the Ethiopian eunuch came to learn about Jesus Christ. It's how Philip was changed too. It's how Philip came to accept a call from God, to follow where the angel led him, to show up, to be present, to enter a conversation. And we see at the end of this story that it's not just the Ethiopian eunuch who goes out rejoicing. It's Philip who suddenly has the confidence to go and preach God's word in the world. This idea of mutual transformation, change that happens between and among people, is central to who we are as Methodists. In fact, Wesley himself, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, began everything because he was so convicted that where he lived in England in the 1700s, people would show up for church week after week, and they would sit in the pews, and they would sing the songs, and they would pray the prayers, but they would just do it out of habit. They weren't being changed in their hearts And Wesley said, there has to be transformation. God's grace is too good to just leave us where we're at. And maybe because he was living and working at Oxford College in this very academic environment, he decided that the the way to address this would be to bring together small study groups of people that could learn and discuss and challenge one another. He thought that if people could engage in worship and discipleship, they could come to know Jesus and be more like him. As Methodists, we believe that discipleship, this idea that we're constantly learning and growing and becoming new, we believe that it looks a lot like it does in this story. It happens in small groups, in conversations, in relationship. As Andy Stanley has said before, we believe life change happens in circles, not rows. And even though Stanley's not a Methodist, I think he's tapping into the same thing that John Wesley was understanding about the church in his time. That God's grace leads us to change 
and that small groups become the place for that change to happen. And so this morning, as we think about grace and discipleship, I want us to ponder our own lives as disciples, where we find formation, where we're being challenged, and and I want us to reclaim the way that we see grace and discipleship happening in this story. And there are three ways I want us to do this. The first is I want us to reclaim that grace happens in discipleship through relationship. We see that in this story so beautifully. When Philip is running up along this carriage, here are two people who could not be more different. Even the the setting of them there, Philip alongside the carriage, puts them at different levels. You have to imagine that the Ethiopian official is up here and Philip is running beside this carriage and looking at this man reading scripture. We also know that Philip, a disciple, had different standards. And he would have known the laws that said that a eunuch, such as this Ethiopian, was not allowed in the temple to participate in the rituals. Another dividing point. And then we hear that this Ethiopian eunuch was an official of the queen. So we have to imagine that this Ethiopian eunuch had status much beyond Philip, who probably looked rather harried and ragged in the moment that they met. And yet, we hear that the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, come and sit. He invites him to be there at the same level beside him, and they enter into a conversation about Scripture, where both of them are asking questions of one another and answering and listening. We all know that in the places in our lives where we can first build a relationship we become more open to learning and changing. I imagine this is why Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia could push each other's buttons about legal issues because they could also go back to places where they had things in common like their love of opera and good food in New York. And they could say, I may not agree with you on this point, but I have a relationship with you and I love you and that's more important to me than what's different. And we see the same thing in church. When we get to know someone, when we get to see them, learn about their family, sit with them in difficult places, suddenly it doesn't matter so much that we agree on every little particular thing. Suddenly we can see them as a child of God, and even if we disagree, we can want the best for them. And so we know that discipleship happens and change happens in places where we can have relationships developed over time. We see this beautifully in the church when we have long-standing Sunday school classes, people who have met together for decades, who know uh, the ins and outs of the other people's family systems, about their grandkids, about their likes and dislikes, and where they vacation every summer. Those kinds of relationships where if someone doesn't show up for a few weeks, you notice, and you call and you say, what's going on? Those kinds of relationships where someone can just walk into a room and you can tell they're a little off that day, and you start to ask them about how they're doing. If we really want to enter into transformative discipleship, we have to be open to finding places to build those kinds of relationships. But it's not just 
the relationships. Because the second thing that we need to reclaim is that within those relationships, we have to have space for questioning and discussion. We just come to church to build relationships and have social time. I'm not entirely sure what would make it much different than going to some social club out in the world. I'm not sure what would make it different than the community pool except for that the church is a place where we can look at scripture, ask real questions, wrestle with difficult circumstances, and do it all in a spirit of discussion where people are heard and where we're prompted to think more deeply about what we believe. We see this modeled in the life and teaching of Jesus. Yes, Jesus sometimes would lecture to people. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stands on a mountain before a bunch of people and he tells them a lot of things. But Jesus always pairs that kind of teaching, that one-way lecturing, with moments where he gets together with small groups of disciples and he tells them parables. And if we think about parables, they're more than just cute little stories. They're those frustrating things in scripture that are never fully clear, that always leave us with more questions than answers, and that prompt us to continue the conversation. When we think about the discipleship that Jesus taught us, and think about how discipleship happens for us today, we have to think about the ways where we are not only engaging in learning, reading, listening, but also where we're engaging in questioning and having discussions. Because the truth is, and we see this over and over again in scripture, and we see it in this morning scripture, no one person holds all the answers. And so we need each other to bring forward for us new ideas, new perspectives, new ways of seeing the world. Now sometimes when that happens, When we're in small groups together and we're having a conversation, we're saying, what do you think this means for us today given what was in the newspaper? We're not going to agree. We're not going to see it the same. In that moment, the purpose of learning is not to change someone over to our side, but to gain clarity on how God has brought us to this place and what God is helping us to see. Sometimes that might mean that we come to a mutual understanding Other times, it might mean that we just become more clear on what we thought before. But however we do it, we do it in communication. I know so often in the church, as I work with adult discipleship groups, and we're looking for people to lead conversations, a lot of folks say to me, I'm not a teacher. And I want you to hear me say today, I'm not a teacher. (laughs) I do not have all the answers, and I think... We think when we talk about small groups and Sunday school and adult discipleship, even discipleship with our children and youth, we think we can't be called to be a part of that discussion unless we know everything. But the truth is, the model for discipleship that we see in Scripture is not about someone standing up and saying, I have the answers, and here they are. Philip doesn't even stand up in this and say to the Ethiopian eunuch, I have all the answers, I will now tell it to you. He says, let's read Scripture together and talk about what we see here. I think maybe a better word for what happens in small groups is not so much that there is a teacher imparting the wisdom, but there is a person who is called forward, and sometimes it's a different person at different times, to facilitate a conversation, to ask questions, to listen, 
help people's voices that sometimes can fall in the background be heard, to help people's voices that sometimes can stand too much in the foreground listen. Discipleship is about facilitating and being a part of these conversations, and this is important because there's a third point, and it's probably the hardest that we need to reclaim about grace and discipleship, and that is that grace and discipleship comes through crisis. Let me say a little bit more about that before you panic. (laughs) Crisis can mean a lot of different things. Of course, the first thing that probably popped into your head and what popped into my head is that crisis is, are those moments in life where something devastating happens. You lose a loved one. Your health begins to fail. Relationships become broken. And you find that your world is shattered. Those are examples of crisis and certainly places where our faith comes into crisis. But crisis can be any moment where we encounter an idea that rubs up against what we believed to be true. We see this happening a lot, and I'm sure our youth pastor, Dennis, could share many stories, but when we're young adults and we're kind of trying to figure out the world for ourselves, we come into life with what we believed as a child, and then we start to see the world, and we form our own identity, and then suddenly what we always thought was true just doesn't fit anymore, and we have a small crisis, and ideally there is someone there with us to walk us through that crisis, and we come to a new understanding of ourselves and God and faith. There is a brilliant man. His name was James Fowler. He's a Methodist minister. He taught at Candler Seminary where I went. He was actually retired when I was a student there. But they still teach and taught at that point his book, which has become a seminal work in something called religious psychology. His book is called Stages of Faith. And it's built upon other developmental psychologists like Erickson and Piaget. He takes all of their theories about how we as human beings learn and grow and he adapts them into seven stages of faith and talks about how we as people of faith move and grow in our understanding of God throughout our lives. When I was at Candler, I was privileged to hear him lecture my class. It was before his health began to fail, and I will always remember sitting in that class and what he taught us. You see, the class, our question was, could you prioritize the seven stages of faith? Tell us which one of these is the best, (laughs) because that's what we all wanted to think we were or think we were on our way to. And he said to us, no, 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 this is not a pyramid. There's not a hierarchy. The stages of faith are things we move in and out of our entire life. What I want you to hear as people who are going to go and serve in churches is this. We move from one stage of faith to another when we hit a crisis point. And the role of the church, and today I would interpret the role of discipleship, is to be that holding space for that moment of crisis. Because in a moment of crisis, you can develop a new understanding of faith, you can lose your faith, or you can get stuck. But if you have a safe holding place, a place where you can live into all of that discomfort and feel held and secure and loved no matter what, your faith will grow. And that's always stuck with me. 
as the vision for what we should be for one another as a community of faith. It's a vision for what God's grace does among us in those common places. When we're living into our best identity as disciples and into our best version of discipleship, we are creating these safe containers for people to come into wherever they are in their life, whether they are in a moment of crisis or they've never been more sure about their faith, where people can come and sit in those spaces, love one another, have meaningful discussion, and hopefully grow deeper in faith, whatever that looks like for that individual. I've been praying a lot over the last year about what discipleship will look like as we get out of this global pandemic. As you know, the ways that we used to do things changed enormously over the past year. Our Sunday school classes all went on Zoom, and even some who would have professed to be technology-averse showed up every week online (laughs) on their camera on the screen to do Sunday school. But moving out of that, the question is, what does discipleship look like? Does it stay online? Do we come back in person and throw out the online stuff? What do we do with what's happened in our world in the past year, and does that belong in the church? And I was was praying about how we can reclaim the kind of discipleship we see here in Acts. I was convicted that there are ways that we need to move as people at Chamblee UMC. And they're based on the three areas I just shared with you. Building relationships, having discussion, and being present for each other in crisis so growth can happen. We need to, as a church, be creating new places for new people. We have wonderful small groups. We have so many of them meeting, whether they're Sunday school, Bible studies, women's circles, men's groups. But when new people come into new places, they might need new things. And so we always have to be asking, where can we be growing to welcome new people in discipleship? We also have to be asking ourselves if we're being called to stand up and become facilitators for this group. Because one thing I'm certain of is we can't add more groups if we don't have more people to be in leadership roles in these groups because Eric and I are only two people and we haven't figured out how to clone ourselves yet. (laughs) And that's why this summer I'm putting together a curriculum for people who think, I don't know, maybe I could do this or I could learn about it, to talk about how we facilitate groups. What are some skills we could hone in on that would help us step into these places of leadership and volunteer to be people who either for a long time or a short time Gather together with small groups so that people can be involved in faith formation. And finally, it occurred to me that we as a church have to step up into a place where we're not afraid to talk about difficult things. If crisis, those places where our old beliefs rub up against new information, are places of change, then we can't, as people of faith, not talk about it. So often we don't want to create waves We say that's not a topic for church. All the while, the world is broken and warring and violence persists and people are feeling broken and the church is going, I can't hear you. But in scripture, Jesus never runs away from those hard places. He sits himself right in the middle of it and says, we're gonna talk about this. And I believe to have meaningful discipleship in the church, we have to bring in and talk about our faith and our scripture in connection to what's happening in the world. And here's the truth. There are people 
online, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, who maybe have never plugged in to a formation group in a church because they're kind of not sure what that's all about, but they are looking for places to talk about the difficult things that are happening in our world because they don't know how to process it either. And as the church, we could be that holding place. We could be that space where people can come and have honest discussions, even if we disagree. Build relationship across the ideological spectrum. Show up just as we are and know that we can be loved and accepted and that we can tackle these difficult issues because that's how God's grace works. This morning, I want you to leave this time thinking about where you are in your formation, in your discipleship. Are you looking for a group to be a part of? Have you been a group for, been a group for a long time and maybe that group's season is starting to pass and something new is starting to happen? Are you in a group that you love, you don't want to leave, don't want it to change, but you're starting to think maybe I've been called for a time to help form a new group as a facilitator? Or maybe I'm being called to learn how I can lead in my own group. There are lots of places that God's grace can move us, but this morning, I hope that you hear in this scripture and in our time together that God's grace moves among us and that we need one another and we need God so that we can grow deeper in our faith and be changed for the better. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for your common grace that runs through and among us. God, we thank you for the people that you place in our lives who are nothing like us, who rub up against us, who challenge us, and who help us to see the world in a new way. God, they are truly reflections of the movement of your spirit. God, today we say that we want to be in relationship with you. We want to know your grace. We want to know one another. We want a place to belong, a place to talk about difficult questions, a place to grow, a place to be a witness to our world. So God, today, move in our lives. Open us to where you are leading. Help us become your disciples who carry your good news to the ends of the earth. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We offer this prayer now in the name of your son, our teacher and savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.